please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, beginning to read at verse 19. Hear the inerrant Word of God. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the Word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And in these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. We love it. It is our food. It is our light. Uh, it is uh, our sanctification, and we come and pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would indeed uh, bring that truth to bear in whatever way that you choose. We love you, and we give to you this time. It is our continued worship as we respond to this, your word. I pray that you would anoint my lips and enable me, uh, even in my weakness, even in my feebleness, to speak that which is appropriate and well-pleasing in your sight. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. May be seated. I think that there is a place for both optimists and pessimists. Of course, that's an optimistic assessment. But think about it. Um, The optimist makes the airplane and the pessimist makes the parachute and both are needed. Uh, The optimist makes the pencil and the pessimist makes the eraser. Now, I would point out that the pencil is a lot longer than the eraser to uh, the pessimist. But when I was younger, I was exceedingly pessimistic. The Lord helped to cure me of that to a great degree. But I still have tendencies in that direction. Uh, I think I would have agreed with Albert Hubbard who said, A pessimist is a man who has been compelled to live with an optimist. (laughs) I think the two groups are sometimes a a frustration uh, to each other. They look at life differently. And the sermon this morning is not to turn pessimists into optimists. Okay? Uh, Even though maybe that might be a good thing to do. This is not a sermon on optimism. I think that developing a solid worldview can help us to become more realistic pessimists or more realistic optimists. And uh, the Lord, I think, has helped me a great deal in that uh, in terms of worldview. And in some ways, the differences between the two parallel the differences between 
problem solvers and goal setters. But that's a whole different subject, a whole different line of discussion than what I want to deal with today. What I want to talk about this morning applies to all of us, the optimists and the pessimists in our midst. I want to talk about how we can be a more positive congregation without giving up any of our distinctives. How we can be more encouraging of each other and accepting of the differences that may exist within the congregation. And it doesn't mean that we close our eyes to differences of view. It doesn't mean that we are blind, you know, to problems that are out there. It doesn't mean that we are not going to follow the Lord's call to bring reformation to society. I believe that I have in part been called to bring reformation, not just in this country, but in other countries as well. But there is a huge danger for all reformers. And uh, the, the, the uh, reformers at the time of the Protestant Reformation uh, realized this and had to struggle with it. The huge danger is that when we bring reform and we see all of the problems that exist in the church, we can become overly critical and we can lose a ministry of encouragement. We can lose patience with people that we do not see eye to eye with. And there is a balance between bringing God's Word completely in all of its fullness on the one hand and unconditionally loving and embracing all whom God loves and embraces. And I praise God we did not get adopted into His family because we had it all put together. We didn't get adopted into His family or get justified by... Uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, we got adopted and justified by faith, right? And uh, God throughout our lives is working on our hearts. And it's very easy to lose a positive perspective in our words when we see so much need for change. And I think this has happened from time to time uh, in my ministry. When you look at Paul's ministry, you see an incredibly delicate balance which is a rebuke to me. You see this balance despite the fact that uh, uh, every epistle that he wrote to, with one exception, had problem people in it. You see this balance all throughout. You especially see it in First and Second Corinthians where most of the problems took place. Now, the books of First and Second Corinthians are filled with calls to change and reformation. There were a lot of problems in those churches and yet Paul balanced his critiques with a great deal of encouragement and praise and statements that built up and the giving of hope. Uh, he embraced them. He loved them. And even when he brought rebuke, he sought to bring them joy as well. And I think that John Piper has really been able to capture this balance. He's a hard-hitting Paul, but he's also a very encouraging Barnabas. Uh, he somehow has managed to uh, bring those into balance in his life. Now, let me read you some of the problems that went on in the church of Corinth so that you can really appreciate the incredible praise that he gives. And I should just give you a warning heads up. This is going to be a longer introduction than ordinary, but I really want to give a little bit of background so that you can appreciate uh, what uh, Barnabas is doing here. He, Paul needed to catch some of this encouraging spirit uh, from Barnabas. Uh, they were quite different in their personality, polar opposites, you might say. But Paul needed to learn a ministry of encouragement. So anyway, here's just a tiny sampling of some of the problems that the church in Corinth faced. Church of Corinth was sharply divided with criticism coming against the leaders, including against Paul. You can see that in chapter 1, verse 10 through chapter 4, verse 21. There was a man who had married 
his stepmother and brought shame on the gospel and the church wasn't doing a thing about it. You can read about that in chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. The Christians were taking each other to secular court. You can read about that in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Uh, there was sexual immorality. where There were obviously some people who were going to prostitutes. Uh, that's chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. There was abuse of spiritual gifts. Chapters 12 through 14. Uh, there were so many problems that Paul said, our bodies had no rest. We were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. There were arguments about marriage, divorce, celibacy, circumcision, head coverings, hair length, eating meat offered to idols, and on and on. Chapter 7, verse 1 through chapter 11, verse 16. I won't even cover all of the problems in 1 Corinthians, let alone 2 Corinthians. It was a troubled church. There were all kinds of things that were going on. And Paul did not ignore those subjects despite the fact that they were controversial. But he did it in a way that still made people feel accepted, affirmed, loved, and he encouraged them. He respected them. He valued them. And I want to do the same. It's one of the reasons why I wrote up a number of years ago this chart of DCC beliefs, uh, circles of belief, liberty, and mutual respect. And just for the record, the reason you can see on the right-hand side there's arrows that are going out. Uh, the reason that we have given increasing liberty of conscience the further out on those circles that you move is not because we're 100% certain that the Bible doesn't talk about those issues. I think in the outer circle, the Bible gives complete liberty, but we may be wrong on those. I know some people think we are wrong. And so, you know, maybe the Bible does demand dry wine instead of sweet wine. <laughs> maybe it does uh, forbid the use of... Uh, not these overhead projectors, PowerPoint, you know, uh, like some people say, maybe it does forbid membership in a particular, partic a particular political party. We're just not convinced of that. I see no evidence that there are biblical mandates on the outer circle, but I am convinced that the three inner circles all do have a right and a wrong answer because the Bible addresses it and just logic tells you one person's right and the other person is wrong. And so the question might come up, well, then why in the world do you give liberty of conscience on these things? If there's a biblical answer, uh, you ought to just nail people on these things, right? Uh, that's the way some churches do it. There are some that give no liberty on these circles that we have talked about. Um, and because these circles have never been discussed and there are people in our congregation who feel that we have not really totally given people liberty in these areas, I thought it was really important that we uh, talk about it. I feel badly about it, and we need to clear the air and discuss these things so you guys know exactly what page uh, that we are on. I am absolutely convinced that the Dominion Commitments uh, section is important enough that officers need to hold to the doctrines on the next circle that's around that, that inner one, the second circle. But... We still want people to feel loved and accepted who differ with us on those particular areas. For example, it might drive an Arminian crazy to hear my preaching every Sunday because a lot of Calvinistic things that come out. But if they choose to be a part of our congregation, we want them to feel loved and embraced by us. Why? Because God loves them and He embraces them, right? We want them to feel that they are valued and respected even if they end up never changing their views. Because Christ has embraced them, we want to embrace them. 
And someone might respond, well, yeah, but if you really love them, you're going to give them doctrine. Well, I agree. But you know what? These people are not going to feel loved if we do not show respect and praise and affirmation and the kind of hope and, and encouragement that the Apostle Paul did. If we um, don't already love them before they've changed and even if they maybe do not change. Paul starts his epistle by calling the people in Corinth saints. He calls them secure in God's grace. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. He didn't allow the errors that were in the congregation to blind him to the fact God's grace was richly at work in these people. It's an amazing thing when you analyze the praise in that, in that epistle. And the issues he was dealing with were every bit as fundamental as the issues in that second circle that, uh, that I ha- uh, have put down there. And yet, along with his corrections, he strews all kinds of positive affirmations of his confidence in them, his love for them, his appreciation for the things that they were doing. I've got some very close friendships outside of this church uh, of people who don't agree with me on a number of things in that second circle. They certainly don't agree with me on the third circle. And yet, I've been able to minister side by side with them. I've been able to fellowship with them. And some people are puzzled by that. And they say, Phil, how can you do that? It's either biblical or it's not biblical. And if it's biblical, man, you need to hammer that. And I can appreciate where they're coming from because every biblical doctrine is important, right? But I would respond with four um, observations. First... There is a big difference between the Apostle Paul being absolutely clear and very dogmatic on all of the details that he is giving and our being dogmatic and absolutely clear about the things that Paul wrote about. You see, Paul was inspired. He was inerrant. He understood it without any error because God gave him the revelation without error. He was able to communicate it without error, but we're not inspired. We're not inerrant. And so automatically, we're going to have a lesser degree of dogmatism than the Apostle Paul had. Doesn't that logically follow? If he's inerrant in his understanding, we're not inerrant in our understanding of Paul. Automatically, we're going to have less dogmatism than the Apostle Paul did. And I know people who are godly people. They really want to obey all of the jots and tittles of the Scripture. And they come to different conclusions than I do on covenant theology and quite a number of different issues. Okay, so that's the first observation. Secondly, remember that people will always have some differences until they get to heaven. And so to demand that we have to see eye to eye on everything is to demand heaven before it's time. Thirdly, and this is, I think, a very important uh, point, Ephesians chapter 4 clearly indicates that the church will not always, will not understand all of the doctrines that the Bible has given right off the bat. Instead, what it says is the church is going to gradually be growing into its understanding of the doctrine over a long historical process. In fact, Ephesians 4 begins at the first coming of Christ and it ends at the second coming of Christ. And it says in these first centuries, there's going to be the church tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. But he talks about this gradual growth into an understanding of grace. And so Ephesians 4 is a very, very important passage for giving people grace during this time 
when there are lots of different doctrines that people are tossed to and fro about. Uh, Paul doesn't want the church to ignore any doctrine whatsoever. He wants us to study the Bible, but he makes it just as clear that we need to have humility as the church historically develops doctrine. Now, there is a book that I highly recommend that you get. It's written by a very famous uh, Reformed theologian called Louis Burkhoff. And the name of the book is The History of Christian Doctrines. Wonderful, wonderful book. And he pointed out that doctrinal maturity does not come by ignoring any doctrine. Doctrinal maturity comes as people discuss the various doctrines. They disagree with each other. They say, hmm, I hadn't thought about that, but what about this area? And they're puzzling through the different features. They have grace with one another. They embrace one another, but they... They think, now, the church didn't always have grace. Some of the debates, when you look at the doctrines of the Trinity and some of the other things they were developing, uh, there was uh, some acrimony that developed. But the doctrines that the church uh, developed over time were developed precisely because people discussed them. They didn't ignore them, but they recognized we're not there yet. And we, we've got to have grace with people who disagree with us. Now, let me make a few distinctions there. The doctrines that were hammered out, and boy, were they hammered out over the first 12 centuries, are non-negotiables as far as I'm concerned. Um, there are Christians today, it seems like they're just wanting to invent history all over again because they don't read church history. But that's the inner circle. That's the inner core. And as far as I'm concerned, any church that denies anything that's in that inner sore is in, uh, circle is in desperate need of reformation. And there is a lot of need for reformation. There are churches that have abandoned the doctrines of inerrancy and uh, they're, 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 they're not clear about the doctrines of the Trinity and things like that. And so those, from my perspective, are non-negotiables. Every member... Uh, needs to hold to those views. But the further out on these circles you get, the less has been written about the subject and the less mature the church uh, really is on those issues, which means that I could be subject to mistake. I may be as certain in my mind that I am, uh, I've got the right view here, but you see, doctrine is not developed just by individuals. It's developed in a historical covenantal context. And so I have to have less dogmatism on them. Personally, I believe that every issue under the DCC commitments has been so thoroughly hammered out by the reformers, by the Scotch uh, covenanters, by the Puritans, that I am willing to be totally dogmatic about all of those doctrines in the second circle. And it's one of the reasons why we uh, why we have the, uh, the officers need to hold to those doctrines. But I still love and I still respect those who differ with me. Now, I'm going to try to convince them hard that my position is correct, right? But while no member, while members can disagree with that second circle of doctrines, no member should undermine the church's doctrines by trying to, uh, you know, teach uh, strife. Sure, they can dialogue with us as officers, but if it's something that really bothers you and you can't just have love covering over a multitude of what you consider to be our sins, you know, on these doctrines, it's better to just transfer. Those are our commitments as a, as a congregation. Now, once you get into the third circle, there should be less dogmatism, even if you are convinced you have nailed it. I know that this is right. Now, I, I, I'm pretty confident that I know what's right in some of those areas, 
but I still recognize I may be wrong. Let me just read from the handout at the bottom of the page there, uh, the, the part that deals with the personal conscience issues, the third circle. These are issues which may indeed be biblical and which should therefore be obeyed, but recognizing that not everyone has the same understanding, we are patient for the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of others. And I should insert there to open our eyes if we are wrong. Right? We need to have that humility to recognize maybe we are wrong on these subjects. In some of these areas, I may be. Dialogue and debate with each other on these issues is appropriate, but charity and patience should be exercised. Though the pastor will teach on these areas, since he is called to teach the whole counsel of God, he will encourage the church to have less dogmatism and more humility on these issues than on the core issues. And so I want you to know, I can respect you. Uh, you know, I can value you, even if you disagree with me, I can respect the position uh, that you hold to in those areas. And I want you to respect me. And when you talk with each other, I want you to respect each other on these issues as well. <clears throat> and one of the things that people sometimes worry about, you know, okay, these are areas of liberty. We just don't dare let other people know what we think on these issues. I don't want you walking on eggshells. Okay, and feeling, oh, man, I may offend somebody. The people who hold to the position and the people who don't hold to the position need to have the same charity and say, well, you could just say, well, I appreciate the fact that you you believe in that. And I'm glad you're seeking to follow the scripture. I'm just not convinced that that's what the scripture says. And, uh, you know, you can agree to disagree agreeably on these areas. And people are sometimes puzzled by this approach. Uh, for example, um, they know by the fact that my wife and my daughters wear head coverings that I believe this is a biblical mandate. I certainly wouldn't have them wearing head coverings, all the grief that I sometimes get, especially other churches, if I didn't think it was a biblical mandate. And so some people immediately feel judged. They know we disagree with the other position. And they think, oh boy, pastor thinks, you know, that we're a lesser of a Christian somehow uh, in that area. But please listen to my heart. If you have studied the Bible on this issue or any of the other issues and you've come to a totally different conclusion than I do, I expect you to differ with me. Okay, I'm not the Pope. I'm not infallible. Um, and, <laughs> and I would think poorly of you if, if um, you had your girls wear head coverings simply out of the fear of man, simply because oh, Phil Kaiser does it, I guess I'd better uh, wear head coverings. No, I want your conscience to be held captive to the Word of God alone, and I will argue just as vigorously for your right to um, I interpret the Scriptures on this and to live your conscience before God, as I would argue for my right to uh, do the same. And so your conscience needs to be held captive. Now, you may find it interesting that for uh, quite a number of years, I held to the position that uh, Paul was not actually calling for um, uh, artificial head coverings, that he was calling for the long hair to be the covering of the head. And when I wrote that paper, I wrote in that paper, this is a difficult issue, and I can very much respect the people who held to artificial head coverings 
Because whatever Paul is talking about here, they're trying to obey Paul. And I could respect that, but I disagreed with them. When I changed my position, I changed my position, but I did not change my respect for the position that I used to hold. And I continue to respect people who who hold to the position. And actually, there are at least three positions that are trying to obey Paul on that particular subject. And uh, they say, you know, whatever it is, they're trying to follow what they understand Paul to be saying. Now, I cannot respect a position that says, well, I don't care what Paul says. I'm not doing it right. Uh, I cannot respect the position just writes it off. Uh, And I am very concerned about people who hold to the position. This is just cultural and we can ignore it because that particular interpretation, which is a fourth one held by some evangelicals, is exactly the same hermeneutic that feminists use to just wipe out whether women can be pastors and that evangelical homosexuals use. It's a very dangerous position. But there are three positions on that that I think are trying to deal with the text. And I bring this up. This is probably a dangerous subject for me to even bring up as an illustration, right? Because it's such an area of disagreement. But I bring it up because I want you to know Look, I can 100% respect a person who disagrees with me. It's not a condition of being an officer. And I'm not thinking the poorer of you if uh, you hold to a different position. Don't have the fear of man. Be captive by the Word of God. And even though this passage in Acts 11 doesn't say everything that could be said about maintaining a positive atmosphere in the church, where there really are honest differences of agreement, It does give some great information that can help us to be an encouraging church that is filled with hope. Now, that's probably the longest introduction I've ever given to a sermon. And I probably get an F on that sermon for homiletics. But hopefully you'll give me grace on this because I'm trying to make this as practical and relevant to what you guys are going through as I can. So let's look at six keys to having a positive church. The first key is to realize that you do not need to be limited by the limitations that your elders have, that your leaders have. Another way of saying this is that I have some blind spots that I don't know about. Well, they wouldn't be blind spots if I knew about them, would they? I have some blind spots, I'm sure. Uh, Rodney has some blind spots that he may not recognize. And what is so important for you is you should not be limited by the ceiling of the church of the leaders. If God has called you to some given ministry, go for it. We want you to go for it. Sometimes we're blind to what needs to happen. And let me explain what was happening in this text. The only time that the apostles witnessed to the Gentiles so far in this book was when God forced them to. It took a lot of convincing for God to get Peter to talk to Cornelius, right? And it just didn't happen that much. And so what was going on as a result is that with very few exceptions, the people were just following the leader's lead. Okay, they were limited by the limits that the apostles have set. The apostles just couldn't see beyond that. Okay, look at verse 19. Now, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. People tend to do what is most comfortable, and that's especially true if you don't set goals. If you don't set new goals for yourself that you're trying to achieve and constantly measure your progress, what's going to happen is you're going to fall into ruts. 
You're going to be doing the same old, same old. Now, I don't want you to get the impression that these guys were being slackers. Uh, that's the impression you get from some commentaries. It's like, what is wrong with these guys? They're racially prejudiced. They won't uh, talk to the Jews. Now, I think these guys were doing everything they could to please the Lord, to expand missions. They were very enthusiastic and excited about this. And if you were to come up to them and get on their case and say, what is wrong with you guys that you're not talking to the Gentiles? I really think they would have been hurt. Because they were putting their lives on the line. It was a tough thing to be a witness to these Jews. It was really hard. And so they were going beyond the call of duty and doing everything they could to see Christ's glorious kingdom being extended amongst those that they were used to seeing. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if witnessing to Gentiles, they say, yeah, if a Gentile by some miracle becomes a Christian, great, we're all for it, but... You know, it seems like an impossible task. It's just not one of the goals. I'm not cut out, you know, to be able to accomplish that. And so I don't think we really should get on their case. We need to give them credit for what they are doing. They're very excited to share the gospel. But the fact of the matter is that there is a tendency for all of us to follow the path of least resistance. Isn't that true? I think every one of us. And the non-Jewish people of Antioch may have looked like they were an impossible audience to be able to conquer. Antioch was so corrupt with, um, for example, the temple prostitution that went on, that hardly a Gentile was not corrupted with those temple's perversions. Hardly a Gentile in those areas. It was a city so high in crime, slavery, sexual perversion, murder, theft, and other vices that even the pagan Romans who were corrupt themselves, they looked at Antioch and they said, man, that's a corrupt city. They used Antioch and especially the, uh, the river that was connected with it, the Orontes, as a synonym for corruption. Just like Corinth. Those are the two most perverted cities in the Roman Empire. Uh, it was Juvenile, I think, who said uh, when some of these vices were coming to Rome, he was saying the, the filth of the Orontes has entered the Tiber. And it was just indicating they didn't like it. They didn't like what they saw there. And so I can certainly understand what the people were doing in verse 19. Even though they weren't converting the Gentiles, we must not forget they were doing a terrific, terrific job in what they were doing. Now, here's the point. Their vision was limited by what the leaders thought could be achieved. And verse 20 points out there were some people who had a faith to go beyond the possibilities that the apostles and the other leaders thought could be achieved. They spoke Greek well. They understood the culture. They tried to reach out to people nobody else had bothered to reach. And so don't let the ceiling of the church be limited by what the leaders see. If God has put ministry on your heart, go for it. Verse 20. Some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, most commentaries, all of the commentaries that I have, I think I only know of one that thought maybe it might be Hellenistic Jews. But most of the commentaries say, no, these are the true Hellenists. These were the Greeks that he was uh, talking to. And I think it's the only one that really fits the flow of, uh, of uh, Luke's argument in this epistle and especially the immediate uh, context. And so this was a huge, huge cultural move. History tells us that these early Christians not only won 
many, many Gentiles to the faith. They were raising up an army from the abandoned babies. See, uh, early history tells us this city had become so corrupt, so polluted, especially with sexual perversions, people thought of children as a burden. They didn't want to have any children. This was a city of somewhere between, the lowest estimate is 500,000, somewhere between 500,000 and 800,000 people. Uh, third largest city in the, in the Roman Empire. Huge city. So every day there were, uh, well, not every day, but many days there were thousands of babies that were abandoned to be eaten by the dogs. And what the Christians would do is they would make their circle through the city every single day and pick up these babies. By the way, that was where the false charge of cannibalism came against Christians. They'd see these Christians every day picking up these babies, taking them somewhere. And they started the rumor that they were eating babies. Uh, but even though there was persecution within the church, there was a positive atmosphere that was created by people who were not limited by their leaders' blind spots. And young people... Don't let us old fogies dampen your enthusiasm, your idealism, your, your zeal to accomplish something. Just because we think it can't be done doesn't mean it can't be done. And we old fogies, we need to make sure that our cynicism does not get in the way of their faith, their excitement, their enthusiasm to extend God's kingdom. Think big. A Chinese proverb goes that the man who thinks it can't be done should not interrupt the one who is doing it. <laughs> so think big okay a second key to a positive church is to realize that Christ is the only one who can build the church look at verse 21 and the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number believed and turned to the Lord I talked to a very successful church planter one time who was ready to leave the ministry. He had been under so much pressure. Now, he was a rising star in the church planting movement. His first church, I think it was within a couple of years, but for sure, in under three years, had gone from zero. He didn't even start with a core group. From zero to 500 people. It was a thriving church, well-established. And so, he was uh, given money to go start a church in another city. And it was just an absolute flop. He did exactly the same things. And five years later, he had 50 people and had run out of money and was so discouraged he didn't know what to do. He came to realize leaders can't build a church. Only Christ can build the church. And churches sometimes put great pressure on leaders to accomplish what only God can accomplish. And it's just not fair to the leaders. Uh, the Mission to North America Committee used to do this, and it, it really created some very unhealthy uh, atmosphere in the churches. Now what they're doing, and I think what m is doing right now is really great. Now what they're doing, they've much more localized this, doing it church plants mostly through local churches and through Presbyterian. They don't plant anything themselves at the national level. And what they're doing is they're trying to help people to be sensitive to what God is doing. God is sovereign. Christ is building his church. Where is he acting and what kinds of ways can we get on board with God rather than to fight against providence? They're emphasizing very much. How do we uh, become a praying church? How do we show our dependence upon the Lord? How are we sensitive to his movement? I'm very appreciative of what they are doing now. This verse says that the hand of the Lord was with them. This was the only reason for their success. As a church 
We are totally dependent upon God's blessing. And if He removed His blessing, there isn't a thing we could do of any eternal significance whatsoever. Nothing. So, a positive church is a church that does not depend upon itself, depends on God for everything. But here's the point. Our God is big, right? And we can have a great expectation from the greatness of God. On the other hand, we are small. So, if we try to do what only God can do, then we're just going to get frustrated and cynical and critical of other people. And so, a vision of the greatness of God and of our own smallness, I think, is a, a key uh, to having a positive church. A third key is to realize that the church always needs encouragement. Even when they need a rebuke, <laughs> they need encouragement. And you can see this in Paul's epistles. God put Barnabas into this church to give that church a spirit of encouragement. And the whole church became an encouraging church. Look at verse 22. The news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. Now, if you quickly flip back to chapter 4, you will see that the name Barnabas was not his given name. It was a nickname given to him by the apostles because he was just overflowing with encouragement. Uh, chapter 4 and verse 36. It says, And Joseph, that's his um, birth name, and Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement. This was a nickname they had given because, again, he's, he just overflowed with encouragement. Every church needs a Barnabas, maybe several, but all of us need to have some of Barnabas wear off on us. We need to be encouragers. Now, look, take a look at chapter 11 and verse 23. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. Now, it's very easy to just breeze over those words. But I want you to think with me for a moment at what Barnabas could have seen when he went to that church in Antioch. Uh, these guys are all brand new converts. They're coming out of paganism. And what kind of paganism have they been coming out of? Uh, it, it, was a, it was a really dark city that these guys had been converted from. Uh, Corinth and Antioch both. And so, what he could have seen is, ooh, he's a homosexual in that corner, but he saw a saint. He could have seen, oh, here's a bunch of guys over here with venereal disease. He could have seen people who talked differently, dressed differently, acted a little bit differently. In fact, he could have seen all of the things that grace had not yet conquered in their lives. But what does the text say that he saw? It says that he saw God's grace. He saw God's grace. A positive church will not ignore the things that grace has yet to conquer, but it won't discourage, be discouraged by those things. It will see the power of God's grace and it will be encouraged by the progress of grace. So, first, he noticed the grace. Second, he focused on the grace rather than on the issues that remain. Third, this grace thrilled him. It thrilled him. He was glad for what he saw. He saw God's grace step by step overcoming the world, the flesh, and the devil. He wasn't expecting perfection, and we shouldn't either. What he was expecting was grace. There should be grace there. And wherever he saw grace at work, it made his heart glad. A positive church will be encouraged by the presence of grace rather than discouraged with the length of the road that's ahead of us. Or another way of saying it is uh, if you tell a person... 
I want you to cut down this forest. They're going to be so discouraged. They're going to feel like giving up. How in the world am I going to cut down this forest? It could take the joy all out of it. But if instead you say, look, I know there's a lot to work on. Don't even worry about that. I want you to cut down this tree today. And I want you to cut down this tree the next day. You can cut down one tree in a day, right? And chop it all up. That's a doable thing. And so each day I want you to cut down these trees. And as he does it, you encourage this person on the things that he's going through. You, you give him hope. You help him to rejoice in the progress that is being made. Now, Barnabas did not ignore the fact that these people still had a forest that needed to be cut down in their lives, right? He didn't ignore that. He just helped people be glad in the progress and the victory after victory that was being made. And so verse 23 goes on to say, He was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. His view of grace, man, it was a confident view. God's grace is sufficient for the problems that you are facing. It uh, neither let him give up on the conquering of sins, nor did it make him discourage them by berating them. You guys have got a forest in your life that needs to be cut down. What's wrong with you? Okay, he, he, he avoided both of those uh, extremes. Instead, he continued to encourage them to continue. Keep up the good work. You're doing a great job, you know. Um, look at the progress that you've been making over the last month. I know you're discouraged, but you have made incredible progress. And this is what every believer goes through. He was encouraging them. And as I was going through this, I was thinking of the Christian movie that we watched for the second time recently called Facing the Giants. And I think that that uh, coach is such a great metaphor of the way in which we ought to be a Barnabas. At the beginning of the movie... He just kept chewing out the kids and getting on their case. And, and he was so frustrated that they weren't winning. But his talks were demotivating them. Because all he could do is point out the negative. Now, when he got his act together, the coach didn't make the football players play any less. If anything, he drove them more, didn't he? But he did it through motivation, through praise, through encouragement. He captured their vision. He had to take Brock aside because Brock was such a leader. He was discouraging everybody else. And so he had to take Brock aside and show him, you really can do it. You think you can't. And so he took him aside personally and helped to change his vision to see that he could accomplish far more than he thought that he would be able to accomplish. People want motivation. And they want vision from the leaders, not a weekly beating from the pulpit. And I want to ask your forgiveness if from time to time I've been like that coach at the beginning, you know, where I'm beating on you uh, rather than uh, the later coach uh, where there was that encouragement. And I want to be like the later coach in facing the giants. Tough, yet encouraging. Paul and Barnabas mixed together. And I think sometimes I succeed in that and sometimes I think I, I fail. Uh, by having a positive focus, Barnabas challenged these saints to move forward even more. His ministry of encouragement, it, according to this verse, it was a great impetus for them to be faithful to the Lord. And uh, it's my desire to imitate Barnabas better in this regard. And you can do the same with your children. When I was in grade school, uh, there was a period of time where I absolutely hated school. I got spankings almost every single day because I'd flub up on my homework. In fact, uh, when I went to a, a school reunion uh, one time, they 
uh, where everybody was saying what they remembered. And they said, oh, yeah, Kaiser. Oh, we know about him. He was the guy that got most spankings in the history of the school. And I said, really? Oh. Um, and I remember 1963 it was the longest year of my life. I thought that year would never end. It was just a, it was a horrible uh, year for me. And most of those spankings that I got in school was because I flubbed up in homework or didn't do my homework or was daydreaming during the class and didn't see the teacher coming up behind me, you know, uh, or it was just like Calvin, you know, Calvin just in a daze, you know, and until the teacher whops him on the on the shoulder or I simply didn't know the answer. Uh, my teacher was absolutely exasperated with me. And in some senses, I feel sorry for her because I probably was. I probably made her pull her hair out. <clears throat> I was exasperated with myself because I thought that I was a dunce. But there was a, a short-term teacher who, <laughs> who really took an interest in me. And she praised me. She helped me to do my homework and showed me when, when I thought I just couldn't do it, showed me that I really could and gave me a confidence in myself. Now, I never tried hard for the teacher who beat me, but I would have done anything in the world to please that teacher that was a Barnabas. And I got straight A's in every course that she taught. Uh, because she was such an encouragement in my life and she valued me for who I was, not just for what I produced, but she believed in me. And it had just an incredible impact in my life. I continued to excel in those subjects that she taught uh, long after she was no longer in my life because she had been such a Barnabas uh, for me. <clears throat> now, there is a place for beatings. <laughs> you know, I believe that uh, spankings are appropriate when they're done in love, but there needs to be encouragement right along with that. And I really want to excel in being like that teacher who was a Barnabas in my life. And I ask you not only to pray that we as leaders would get more and more of these Barnabas-like qualities, but that you would be Barnabases in each other's lives. <clears throat> be a Barnabas to... Your children and you children, your parents sometimes need your encouragement too. be a Barnabas to your parents and all of us. Let's be Barnabases to one another, uh, those who are discouraged in the church. Now, how do we get to be a Barnabas? Well, verse 22 gives the answer for here's the reason for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Now, before you get discouraged and say, oh, man, well, he's a good man. I'm not. <laughs> so I can't be there. I want you to ask the question, why could Luke call him a good man? After all, Christ says there is none good but God, right? How could he be called a good man? And I believe that the only people who can be called Good men and good women are those through whom God's goodness, God is living his goodness through. You know, in, in Genesis 1 and 2, there's a lot of things that are called good. Every one of them was made by God. After the fall, uh, there are people who are called good, but they are doing things that they are receiving from God. It's God's goodness being lived through them. For example, Psalm 37, 23, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. 
It comes from above. Uh, Galatians 5.22 says, Goodness is a fruit of the Spirit. Uh, and in the Old Testament, good men are those who depend upon God for everything. Proverbs 14.14, 14, The backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways. You get that? With his own ways. But a good man will be satisfied from above. In Matthew 12.35, Jesus said, A good man... So he indicates there are good men. It's not a contradiction of what he said earlier. There is none good but God. But he says a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. And so the issue is, do you have the treasure of God within you? Do you have the goodness of God within you? Job 25, verse, uh, 22, verse 25 says, Yes, the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. And so verse 24 goes on to say that the source of Barnabas' goodness is this. He was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. The divine key to having the encouraging spirit of Barnabas is being filled with the Spirit. The human key to having that same Barnabas' spirit is having faith. Faith to receive all of these things from God, including the encouraging spirit that Barnabas had. And so when any of us <laughs> are not acting like Barnabas, pray that we'd be filled with the spirit and that we would see through eyes of faith, because apart from that, we're just going to do what comes naturally. And it sure ain't what Barnabas was doing. Right. And so pray for us that we would do that. Faith and the spirit are intertwined concepts. You can't even have faith to seek God unless God sought you first. But as you seek God with all your heart, you're not going to only find God. He says you seek him with all your heart. Yes, you'll find me. But he's going to give you the graciousness to be gracious with others. And so they really are intertwined. Now, Barnabas could see grace in an imperfect church because, as John Piper says, Faith is like a homing device for grace. Faith always looks for grace. It finds it wherever it exists. It rejoices in grace. It expects more grace. And faith is contagious. Faith tends to stir up faith in other people. And grace tends to do the same thing. When you are gracious with others, it tends to spill over into graciousness in their lives. And so, if all of us have this kind of faith and this kind of graciousness then uh, we're going to have an entire spirit within the church uh, that uh, characterized uh, Barnabas. So daily uh, pray for the filling of the spirit, looking through the eyes of faith, and you will become infected with the spirit of Barnabas. Now, the fifth key is to realize that the way we relate to people reflects the way we relate to the Lord. Uh, last part of verse 24 says, And a great many people were added to the Lord. They were added to the Lord. Okay, they became a part of the Lord's body. He's the head and we are the body. And how we treat each other is how we treat the Lord. In Matthew 25, Jesus said that as we treat or fail to treat each other, we are treating or failing to treat the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this can either make us feel guilty if we don't want to change and we're not willing to change. Or it can give us an incredible enthusiasm, a credible motivation when we realize I actually can serve the Lord personally in the way in which I relate to other people. Practice imagining yourself speaking to Jesus when you come up to Rodney and you speak to Rodney. Because it says, 
Inasmuch as you do it to Him, you're doing it to Christ. Practice imagining that when you change your baby's diapers, you are changing Christ's diapers. Now, in case you think that's irreverent, you've got to read Matthew 25 and really believe it. Because in Matthew 25, He says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. And they're going to answer, Lord, we didn't even see you. How in the world could we have done these things? His answer, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Throughout the Scripture, the least of these are babies, right? And so when you're feeding a baby's hunger, you're feeding Christ's hunger. When you're clothing a naked baby, you're clothing Christ. How you treat each other, you are truly treating Christ because of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you once capture that, automatically your attitude is going to be changed and negativism is going to evaporate. We tend to forget, but if you consciously are treating each other as if Jesus is right there speaking to you and you're talking with Him, acting toward Him, it will transform the way in which you you uh, uh, view life. And so this is a key to being a positive church. The last key is to realize that no one person can do the work alone. In verses 25 through 30, we see body life going on where Barnabas needs Saul and both need the prophets and the apostles need the church and they need the saints and the saints are ministering there. And the church in Jerusalem needs the church in Antioch. Now, the beauty of body life is that every member is valued, but not so that they can just do whatever they want to do in their lives, but so that they can do it as the head. Jesus directs. There is a, an expression that the Bible uses: Everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. And it's not a compliment. <laughs> it's not a compliment. Body life is not everyone doing that which is right in his own eyes. Neither is the mutual respect and the liberty that we talk about in that first chart. It's not saying, hey, I can do anything I want to do. No, that's not the whole point. The whole point is your conscience stands bound before Christ and you are bound to obey what you believe the Lord is doing. And so daily we need to be conforming our thoughts to the Lord Jesus Christ through whom alone we're going to have liberty. We're going to mess up if you get your liberty through us. You're going to mess up because, I mean, just before the service here, I, I was acting like uh, Paul sometimes acted, not like Barnabas with my son, Jonathan. I could just tell I took the wind out of his sails. He was excited about something. And and I was talking about the lousy theology, you know, it was behind that particular movie. I haven't even seen the movie. Here I am being critical. And we've got to watch that. We've got to be positive uh, with uh, with one another uh, in in the body. Now, we can have confidence as we relate in the body that he values the body a whole lot more than we do. He's the head after all. It's his body. He knows how fast he wants people sanctified. He knows how fast he wants to open the eyes of their understanding. You know, when you're arguing with some Arminian, don't get frustrated and angry and just write them off. The Lord took a while probably to open your eyes to these truths too, didn't he? We need to have that patience and that love and say, brother, I love you anyway, even though I disagree with you on this, but I'd love to talk with you about it. Why don't we just chat? And as soon as you sense that he's getting irritated about your Calvinism, say, look, I don't want to get you irritated. The whole point of this thing is because I love you. And if you're going to get irritated, let's just not talk about this. okay? But I value you whether you're an Arminian or whether you're a Calvinist. 
Okay, the body works together and the Lord needs not just this church. He values and respects the other churches as well. Now, I I believe he's called me to bring reformation. But by myself, I can't do it. Okay, we need the body. We need the Lord Jesus Christ working in and through us. And we can have a confidence that the Lord knows how to bring this about. We don't need to get frustrated. And when we can value both the diversity and the unity that the body implies, I think we have another key to a positive church. In fact, the the principles in that section are so profound and varied. I want to spend an entire sermon next week on verses 25 through 30. So I'm not going to even develop uh, point six today. But I do plead with you, please pray with me. Join me in praying that we would excel in the grace that Barnabas had. Uh, we're all going to be different in the way that we show uh, forth this encouragement. You could not have gotten more different personalities than Paul and Barnabas. And some of you guys are going to be much more optimistic than others. Others are going to be very pessimistic. Some of you are going to be so easily discouraged. And others, nothing seems to faze you. Some of you are going to be frail and others are going to be thick-skinned. That's okay. God's made these differences purposely. But... Um, if we can work together and covenant together to be more like Barnabas, I think the Lord will prosper our church as He has never prospered it before. And so this is my pledge to you. I want to, on a daily basis, in my devotions and throughout the day, drink so deeply of the Spirit of Barnabas, which is Christ. I want to drink so deeply of the Christ of Barnabas that his goodness rubs off on me, that his encouragement becomes my encouragement. And I want you guys to covenant to do the same thing. Let's be a Barnabas church. Amen. Father God, I thank you for people like Barnabas that you put into the church of Jesus Christ who taste so richly of your Holy Spirit. You have called your Holy Spirit the Comforter. And Father, many times we just tear the scab right off and we don't bring comfort. And I pray that you would forgive us for that. Help us, Lord, to be a Barnabas church. You know our weaknesses. You know our tendencies. And some of us are going to struggle more with this than others will. But Father, we want so much to please you. We want so much to grow in every area in your life. And Father, it's going to be a tough balance to be able to speak the truth in love and back off when we need to be backing off and not walk on eggshells and yet, Father, to respect and value one another in all of these different areas. Father, help us to do so. And help us to trust You that You know how to govern Your church. You know how to sanctify Your people. We can't do it. And so we come to You as under-shepherds and say, Lord, the over-shepherd of the sheep, please be with us and shepherd this Your congregation. And make each one of us into a church that is filled with joy, that joy indescribable and full of glory, because we are filled with your spirit through whom alone we can have that joy. Minister to this, your people and bless us in Christ's name we pray. Amen.